Hey everybody and welcome to a brand new episode of The Break. I'm Father Roderick and this episode is a little bit late, but it's because I've had a lot to do this past week, but nevertheless, I've got plenty of stuff to talk about, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. One of the things that uh, kept me busy last week was a lot of running and preparation for the Walk of the World. This is a huge, huge walking event, the biggest one in Europe, maybe even in the entire world, where tens of thousands of people will walk for four days, I think between, well, between 30 kilometers and 50 kilometers a day. So um, last year I walked uh, 50 kilometers per day, but because of the heat wave that we were going through, there were only three days of walking. So I walked about 150 kilometers. For this year, I initially uh, entered the th- that same distance for four days, and it's already very close. It's uh, going to start on July 18th. But at the very last minute, I decided maybe that's a bit too ambitious. Uh, I didn't really train that much. Well, of course, I did a lot of running, but I didn't do a lot of walking. And walking, even though it uses your legs just as running, it is a slightly different type of exercise. And I was worried that if I hadn't trained at all for these long distances, going to walk four days in a row um, would would give me a lot of problems, maybe even injuries. And this is also based on the experience that I had last year where I walked those three days on the same walking boots or actually mountain boots that I uh, used when I was walking to Santiago. Um, and, and that was years ago. So I figured, well, they brought me all the way to Santiago, uh, which is uh, thousands of kilometers. So why not just use them for these same, uh, for these short, relatively short distances? Um, the thing is, it is a totally different uh, type of of road. Um, during the walk of the world, you're mostly walking on um, on asphalt, on 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 hard roads, not in the woods, not on mountains, and that is where I originally uh, needed those those mountain boots for. But trying to walk this particular event on those uh, walking boots proved to be a pretty disaster, pretty much a disaster. I had so much pain, especially on the last day, that I, I didn't think I was going to finish it. And it was purely by meditating and trying to block out the pain and, and, and by stopping all the time and taking my shoes off and putting them back on that uh, with a lot of grinding of teeth, I was able to reach the finish line. But I vowed to never make that mistake again. So uh, last week, I thought, well, maybe now it's time to get myself uh, new walking shoes and I'll go to a specialized shop. I can also, of course, order these things online and that would probably save me a lot of money, but I want to make sure that I have the right shoes. I need professional advice. So I went to an outdoor store here in, um, in, the, the, uh, in the nearby town and uh, spent about two hours fitting all types of different shoes. I was already glad that I had changed the distance to 40 kilometers a day, but still I was a bit apprehensive um, to, to, to try to walk, uh, what is it, so uh, four times 
40, that's 160 kilometers on old shoes. And uh, I read online that it's not a good idea to, to try to walk long distances on running shoes, which was my kind of my initial plan, um, but that it's much better to get proper walking boots. So ended up after two hours of trying out all sorts of different shoes with a pair of very expensive shoes. Um, they were 220 euros, which is insanely expensive, um, but very solid, very good quality. Actually, the same brand as my um, my mountain boots, uh, but smaller and relatively light. And so this past, was it on Sunday? Yeah, it was on Sunday. I decided to, well, try them out. And then, of course, when you have brand new shoes, it takes a while for those shoes to kind of get used to your feet and your feet to get used to the shoes. And so I tried to walk uh, 30 kilometers. I figured, well, I'll do 30 kilometers on Sunday and then I'll do 30 kilometers on, on Monday. It's not as tough as 40 kilometers and then for four days, but it will at least give me an indication of uh, whether or not this is working for me. Turns out it was a total disaster. After 20 kilometers, I arrived at the city of Arnhem and I was in so much pain. Literally, like it felt as if I was walking on, on knives. It, it, was, it was so much pain, especially in the ball of my feet, that I just couldn't walk back, which I initially wanted to do. So I, I had to take the bus back um, and I came home totally... <laughs> devastated like this is not gonna work i have these very expensive shoes i had the best advice they even measured my feet with like 3d scanners and i still end up with shoes that are so painful what's going on and well after a while when i got back home and i i, I rested my feet and i took a cold shower just to you know get try to get rid of that build up of that heat and that pain in my feet um, I started to think, well, maybe it's not just the shoes. Maybe maybe this is my feet. Maybe I have been over-exercising, over-training. And um, when I started to add up how many kilometers I actually was running every week, I've got three sessions uh, of, of, of pretty intense running training on Tuesday, on Thursday, and on Saturday. And added to that daily walks and oftentimes even long distance runs that's a lot of running and that combined with a lack of sleep because of the heat it's thankfully this week a lot cooler in the house so i do manage to get regular um, amounts of sleep but before that I, I just was constantly tired i don't think that my body got enough time to recover from that very intense training regime and so what i actually think is going on is that my feet are overtrained <laughs> and um, if I go and and try to to walk for four days in these huge distances it's very unpredictable what will happen but it's very likely that it's going to result in massive injuries and so I came to the conclusion that I probably first of all I am going to completely slow down the training in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of those training sessions. Maybe I'll do some light running, but very low impact, low intensity, low heart rate. And I'll replace a lot of that by biking. Because, of course, 
sitting on a bike is going to be a lot more, um, it's a lot easier on, on my feet and it's still going to help me, you know, stay fit and stay in shape. So, um, that's, that's the first thing I'm going to do. And then I will probably try out another long distance walk, uh, but not on those walking shoes because I don't think that they are, you know, they will be ready in, in two weeks from now. Um, instead, um, I do have, or I just ordered, um, another pair of trail running shoes. So they're the same brand of the, as the shoes that I'm normally running on, uh, Saucony, uh, but these are made for lo- really for long distances and they're very comfortable and they were dirt cheap. They were only 66 euros. Um, they were heavily discounted in a German store online so i bought those i know that they fit because it's the same size as the other Saucony pair that i have and what i want to do is to try out if i can walk on those they're slightly different from the from the shoes from the type of shoes that i bought for for running um and if i can walk 30 kilometers without pain then i might give it a try but if not i have i have decided that i will just forego on the whole walk of the world this year, which is a bit of a shame because uh, <laughs> when I registered, I had to pay 110 bucks just for being able to participate. It's a lot of money. Um, but, uh, well, it's, it, it's going to be much more expensive if I get uh, injured and I need medical attention after um, not, in not even being able to, to finish the walk. So it's another realization that even though I'm super motivated for this kind of stuff, you still have to keep into account that I am 55 years old and that my body is does not recover as fast as it used to. And, uh, well, maybe I should just take it easy and not just not overtrain and keep make sure that what I do is still healthy instead of destroying my health. It's, it's a lesson in humility. Um, but, oh, well, what are you going to do? How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. So last weekend, I wrapped up watching Silo, this amazing Apple TV science fiction series um, which uh, ended last week, actually. Um, and this first season, they already greenlit um, a second season. This first season has been incredibly successful for Apple, according to uh, the numbers that have leaked out. Um, it's one of the highest rated shows as well. The, f- the, the, the season's finale got like, like a 9.8 out of 10 on, on the various rating sites, which is unheard of. I, I can't remember a series having that much of a, you know, that high of a rating. Maybe Succession uh, came close, but this is a massive hit for Apple TV+. Plus. And uh, I have to say that I was blown away by this series. Um, I've already touched upon the premise, uh, but in case you didn't listen to that episode, it basically takes place in the future. We don't know exactly when, but something happened to the planet, and uh, it's so dangerous outside that people live in a, in a massive underground silo, which is 
as big as a as a skyscraper, and I think there are twenty thousand people living in that silo. And we don't know much about the rest of the world. We only know that there are very strict rules when it comes to this underground society and uh, their freedom, because what they want to prevent is people from going outside. Uh, the only thing is that the, the outside world is uh, the only contact that they have with the outside world is via a camera that is on the surface and whose image is transmitted on a big viewing screen in uh, in the silo itself. And uh, people are watching the, the image while they're having lunch. It's uh, conveniently installed in the big lunch space. So everybody every day is reminded of how dangerous it is outside. The downside is, so you see this, this basically barren post-apocalyptic landscape um, where everything is, is destroyed. The, the downside is that that camera, the lens, needs to be cleaned every once in a while. And of course, you cannot really force anyone to go outside because it would mean certain death. And so the only people that are going outside to clean that camera are people that have chosen, have, have told the authorities inside the silo that they want out. They want to go outside. And that request is always honored, provided that they clean that sensor. And what we see in the beginning of the series is that someone actually is uh, going outside, cleans the sensor for whatever reason, and then just succumbs to the poison in the air or radiation. We don't even know why, but that person just dies and, and everybody can see it on the screen. Well, it turns out that there's much more going on there and it's all about the, the control of information and this society that is that is keeping together because they are not told everything. And so it's all about who do you believe and what can you believe and what is true and what is not true. Um, I was talking about this series with Inga the other day and she said it's almost like Plato's cave, you know, that, that um, uh, allegory that, that Plato uses where people are chained up in a, in a grotto in a cave, and the only thing that they can see is are the shadows on the wall in front of them. The shadows are actually caused by like puppets or or whatever you know representations that are held um, in the beams of a fire, like the light. There's a fire in the up in the upper part of the cave that causes the people that are only seeing the wall to see just the shadows of the puppets that are being moved up and down but there are actually people holding these puppets so they but they think that what those shadows that that is exactly the truth that that is the real world in 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 on the contrary that's that's just shadows just an illusion and so even if one of those people um, that is only seeing the shadows would go up and escape from the cave First of all, that person would then all of a sudden stand in the sun and wouldn't be able to see anything, completely blinded by the overwhelming amount of light. And so uh, that person would first only see what was on the ground because you want to avert your your eyes from the bright light of the of the sky. And then gradually that person would be able to, to look up and see more and discover more and ultimately even see the sun as the ultimate source of of, of truth to a certain extent. But if that person would return to the cave and tell the others, hey, what you're watching is not true, then probably the people that are 
watching these shadows would rebel. They would say, no, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, what is this nonsense about a big fiery ball in the sky? That is, no, this is the truth, what we're watching, because they don't know that there's anything beyond that. Now, you could you could you can see that 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 metaphor or that analogy probably has also been used by the author Hugh Howey in um, uh, who, who wrote three books about the the this this society in, in underground. Um, it, it's it probably part of what inspired him to write this story, uh, but it's very intriguing, of course, because all of a sudden that story that he wrote, I don't know exactly. How many years? Probably 10 years or more uh, ago is even more relevant today because we now live in a society where we actually are sometimes like these people in the cave and we see shadows and images of what is happening in the world projected on the screen in front of which we're watching or the uh, or sitting or the, or the screen that, that we're looking at when we're when we're browsing our mobile devices but who tells us that what we see is actually the truth? And there is so much to do about fake news and about, you know, people lying. And, and, and who can you trust? If we can't even trust the images anymore, if, if artificial intelligence is able to conjure up uh, fake realities, which, of course, now is, is, is happening uh, you can make like the, the, what is it, fake videos and you can have basically anyone saying anything. Um, it doesn't have to correspond to the truth. Who can you trust? So the, the, the story is all about that. And um, I have to say that the Apple television series uh, is so good at translating that pretty complicated idea and, and plot into a riveting edge-of-your-seat kind of drama. And even though I had already read the, the first book, which I'll also briefly discuss in the book section of this show. Uh, it, the 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 way they told that story for television still took me by surprise, and I was so glued to the screen. I was I was so eager to see how, you know, what they had done with the story and how they would wrap up this first season. It is an amazing show. If you have access to Apple TV Plus, please don't miss this. It is one of the best. Uh, uh, post-apocalyptic series that I've ever seen, and it's um, it's up there with all the other good stuff that Apple is producing for their for their platform. So, Silo season one, highly recommended, and a show with uh, quite a bit of depth and interesting philo philosophical questions. I'm debating on uh, maybe I will do like an audio talk where I'll, I'll, I'll just go over all the episodes of season one for my patrons. Um, I have this uh, ability to post special podcast episodes, uh, audio episodes for people that are patrons. Um, and this might be one of the, those candidates where I'm thinking, you know, I, I cannot talk too much about <laughs> the, the, the show because I don't want to spoil it here on, uh, on the break, but I, I'm still eager to share my my theories and, and my thoughts about that story. So maybe that's something I'll do. Um, I'll let my patrons know, obviously, when that show is uh, is imminent. Um, then, of course, we have the ongoing disaster of the Flash movie um, at the box office. It is it has dropped tremendously after it's still uh, already very lackluster premiere. Um, and now you hear a lot of the 
the media say or blame it on superhero fatigue. They say, oh, too many superhero movies. And I don't agree with that. I think that the failure of The Flash is mostly due to a number one cause, Ezra Miller, the main actor, the primary actor of The Flash movie, who has been so controversial and so... um, I don't know what's going on with that guy, but or it's you cannot even call him a guy anymore because he def- defines himself as non-binary. But anyway, that person is so problematic and is so in so much trouble that I think uh, with all that controversy, people just don't want to support stories that feature this actor anymore. And we already saw a little bit of that fallout in the latest or the last uh, Fantastic Beasts movies, where, of course, uh, Ezra Miller also played uh, one of the main characters. And it's just... it It creates bad vibes, even though everyone who's seen the movie so far says, you know, it's okay, it's, it's an entertaining movie, it's actually, you know, it's funny, and uh, it, it gets emotional towards the end, so it's not a bad superhero movie, it's just, there's, there's, it's not must-see stuff, and uh, there is this whole problematic vibe with the main actor, and you don't want to support that, I, I totally get that. The other reason that I think that this is not due to superhero fatigue is that actually another superhero movie is doing tremendously well, and it's across the Spider-Verse. Um, that, I, I hope to see it soon, but that's an amazing movie, and it's it's still uh, in the top three at the box office after its premiere three weeks ago, or four weeks ago. And so that movie is actually uh, doing a lot better. I think it's Sony that will probably benefit the most from this. So it's not Marvel slash Disney. Um, but uh, it, it goes to show that that if, if there is a good story um, and, and it's quality, people don't mind watching superhero movies. And that's what I also think when it comes to television. I uh, already shared my slight disappointment when it comes to uh, Secret Invasion on Disney Plus. I thought, you know, it's it's yeah, it's it's I watch it because it is part of that MCU, but I don't really enjoy it that much. It's a bit bland and it I just don't know where why why this is essential viewing. It it just kind of I don't know. It's it, it was underwhelming so far. Um so, but but I would watch uh, uh, other television series, and <laughs> I, I really still hope to watch uh, a number of uh, sequels to, uh, like Captain America and the sequel to uh, WandaVision. Um, I'm looking forward to those, but for some reason, you know, Secret Invasion doesn't work for me. So, what else am I going to watch uh, in the co- next couple of weeks? Uh, I'm. Continue, I continue to enjoy tremendously strange new worlds. I watched the third episode of the second season, which was about time travel, and it was so funny. And it was... Uh, I, what I love about this season is that they are um, highlighting certain members of the crew, and they get their, their own episodes. So you get a lot of depth added to these team members, and they do it in a, I think, in a brilliant way. Um, I I thought the execution of the third episode was was tremendously funny. Um, it's the actors, both of the main actors, so it's about uh, what's her name, Lana, Lana, or uh, don't don't pin me on these these names. I uh, anyway, she goes 
to the past with with Kirk, with a young Captain Kirk. Well, he's, he's well, actually, he is in that re- reality. He is Captain, um, and these two actors have a, have a great rapport, great chemistry, and it's so refreshing. It's so funny. Um, so uh, I, I'm I'm very happy that we have that. Um, in terms of anime, I'm. Uh, starting to watch some series that I want to comment upon on my TikTok channel. So uh, I'm going back to Evangelion, which is this very strange story about children uh, piloting these big mecha robots, these, these huge, huge droids um, that are necessary for to fight these Transformer-like so-called angels that are attacking Tokyo 3. Um, and there's a lot of Symbolism, a lot of Christian symbolism in there that I'm intrigued by. Uh, so I'm I'm going to rewatch the rebuild movies. So basically, after the television series, which is about 26 episodes, the uh, creator decided to kind of summarize the story of the television series in in one movie, and then to do two more sequels, where it gets really wacky and really strange, and there's a lot of debate still going on years later about the meaning of all that. And I think that as a theologian and as a priest, I may have some some information that would be interesting to decipher what the intentions of the author was. Um, so I'm going to watch these bit by bit. I'm also going to uh, to watch the, the Attack on Titan series, uh, which is uh, about... A, a, a society that lives be behind a wall and the walls is there to keep these huge nude monsters giants like flesh-eating giants outside uh, and they keep attacking the city and there's a real mystery where they come from and what's going on there um it's a very very uh lauded uh, anime series based on a manga and uh, and and according to my followers on TikTok, it's uh, it's also has quite a bit of, of religious symbolism. So yeah, I'll uh, check that one out. And I am eager to see the rest of the Vinland saga. There are now two seasons, and um, that's about Vikings and about a boy who loses his father and then becomes very vengeful and uh, very ruthless. And in the second season, it's all about, in a certain way, his redemption and his growth. And um, it's it's a wonderful story and intriguing for me because it's also based on a lot of real historical um, data that we have about that time and about Vikings and about the, the interaction between the Vikings and, for instance, the, the early monks in the, in the north of England. And and so um, I think I, I could probably also do some commentary on Vinland Saga. Then the final thing that I want to watch in the weeks to come is uh, in preparation of the Ahsoka Star Wars series that we're going to get in August. I I just noticed that it's going to premiere when I'm on vacation in France. Ah, so frustrating because I absolutely want to do uh, episode commentary on my YouTube channel, but I'll have to figure out a way to do that from France. But in order to prepare for Ahsoka, 
I want to watch the final season of Star Wars Rebels, which I've never seen. And I think it's going to be fun to watch those episodes and also uh, comment on them on my YouTube channel. So uh, if you want to follow that, go to youtube.com slash fatherroderick in case you're not subscribed yet uh, and you would like to hear my take on Star Wars Rebels because, of course, that particular season will lead straight into the the events of Ahsoka. <laughs> Catholics rock! It is time for a quick visit to the Peculiar Bunch. These strange Catholics, and you always wondered, what are they doing? Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Because in many ways, Catholics are not just run-of-the-mill faithful that just believe fairy tale stories. No, there there is much more to these Catholics. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. Today I would like to discuss how the Catholicism of J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite writers, has impacted and influenced his um his version of the hero's journey. Now, you know, of course, that Campbell wrote a lot about the hero's journey as the kind of underlying mono-myth that you can find in almost any type of storytelling, whether it's mythology or religious uh, stories or in the Bible, in in fairy tales, even in modern uh, science fiction and fantasy uh, television series, you, you often have that same the same story beats, and it's always about this, you know, most most of the time an orphan or someone who comes from a poorer situation and then has to give up a lot of things to go save the world, and in between, in, during that quest, goes through a lot of trials. And um, Tolkien, to a certain extent, um, is following the 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 story beats of of the the hero's journey, but there are still some fundamental differences with uh, almost any other type of of mythology. And this is because, and Tolkien explains it himself, because his Catholicism, his, his Catholic worldview, permeates everything that he wrote. And not in a superficial way. It's not that, that, that like with uh, his colleague C.S. Lewis, um, you know, everything needs to have a biblical equivalent. He didn't want to introduce any biblical elements into his story or any religious, openly religious uh, themes in The Lord of the Rings or in Middle-earth because he felt that the religious themes should be just subsumed by the story, should be just part of the values and of the whole story itself without having to identify it as religious. And this is particularly visible in the way that he tells his own version of the hero's journey. Starting with, you know, who is the hero of the story? It's it's not a dwarf or an elf or a man or, or even a wizard. You know, classic heroes of so many fairy tales and fantasy stories. No, instead it is a hobbit. It's not even a... A, 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 like a, a the, the cliche poor orphan hobbit. No, it's just 
you know, Bilbo, who is actually doing quite well. He has a very comfortable life. And then later on, it's his, his nephew, uh, Frodo, who also, even though we don't know much about his parents, is is pretty much at ease in, in the Shire. And these tiny little creatures uh, of Middle-earth become the true heroes. But also not in the classical way. It's not that they are overcoming every obstacle and then ultimately grow stronger and stronger and save the day. In fact, the story of Frodo ends in failure. He is unable to destroy the ring uh, uh, towards the end. Spoiler. <laughs> and it is because, because Gollum intervenes and, and, and bites off the finger uh, Frodo's finger with the ring uh, and then falls into the fires of Mount Doom that the ring ultimately is destroyed. So um, Frodo is, is kind of like, almost like uh, the opposite of a classic hero and even his journey ends not really in success but in failure and uh, there are there are quite some indications that, that Frodo has always regretted the fact that he failed there on Mount, uh, Mount Doom, and that is one of the reasons that he ultimately, you know, the, the wounds in his soul and, and the, the, the damage that the ring did to him made him actually want to leave the Shire and, um, and, and, and depart for the, the eternal land of the elves. Whereas Sam, who has... Also a heroic role, but not the main hero's role, um, is, 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 is he's helping Frodo to carry his cross slash the ring. Um, and ultimately, if it hadn't been for, for Sam, then, then probably the entire endeavor would have ended in disaster. But Sam, is, is uh, he is the one who actually has the happily ever after type of fairy tale ending you know he he goes on to live in the shire and and live a happy life whereas frodo the the the, the main character of the lord of the rings there's nothing in this middle earthly life that can heal him fully and and so he longs for this the completion in, to a certain extent uh, in, in in the land beyond the sea which is to a certain extent, also, uh, you could say, uh, a reference to the Christian concept of heaven. He's only, um, nothing in this world can fully fulfill us in the way that God is going to fill our lives forever uh, in, in heaven. It's, it's a, uh, you could say, a completion that is never achievable in this life. So th th these are very important themes in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, and I kind of like it because it, it, it helps me to understand why the church, why the Catholic church um, proposes these saints and martyrs to us as examples. Not as, you know, almost God, half-gods or, or, you know, heroes that do nothing wrong, but most of the saints that we know are flawed people and people that... that, that um, especially in the case of martyrs, ended in 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 total disaster. It's, you know, they didn't win. They lost. They lost their lives. They died. Uh, and yet, those people are presented to us as examples and models for our own lives. And that is reassuring because it means that 
I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be a hero in order to do what God expects me to do uh, it, during, during my life here on earth. And it is, um, in, in a certain way, Frodo in many ways resembles Christ, He's a, a messiah t archetype to a certain extent. Uh, for instance, you know, this upcoming Sunday, um, there's this gospel where Jesus says, um, uh, you know, come to me, all you who are tired and exhausted, and give me your burden, and I will give you my burden because my burden is light. My yoke is light and my burden is, is, um, is light. Uh, uh, th this, this is very similar to, to, the, to Frodo's role, who doesn't want his friends to carry the burden of the ring and he volunteers to carry it himself and he is wearing the ring and, and, and carrying the incredible weight of everything the ring stands for which is of course violence and, and despair and evil um, he carries it up the mountain and then Sam comes to his aid and, and carries Frodo for the very last part of that journey um, just as in in the way of the cross Jesus gets help um, but ultimately it's still Jesus who uh, who sacrifices himself to save the the world just as Frodo sacrifices himself but at the very last moment it's still this eucatastrophe <laughs> as, as Tolkien names it it's this like it, everything still seems to go wrong and and still in, in everything that goes wrong it somehow comes together it's kind of this this strange um conundrum of of christian life where failure ultimately can still result in victory but you can only win if you are willing to lose everything just as christ can only vanquish death by by sacrificing his own life and uh the the, the ultimate victory comes about through god the father himself and, and so I think that, that Tolkien, in, in the way he portrays Frodo, Frodo is not the ultimate hero of the story. It is somehow, in a very mysterious way, fate that still brings about victory over evil in the midst of human failure, or in this case, uh, hobbit failure. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I thought it was an interesting uh, uh, take on, on the hero's journey um, and I'm, I'm thinking of maybe recording a short video about that. Um, I used to do the, the, the gospel for geeks when I was still streaming mass. And, um, some of you have asked me, well, can you do something like that? Just do a short meditation on the readings. And, you know, just the other day I was sitting down and writing, I, I could probably write like a, 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 a YouTube short with just this little story about how Tolkien's hero's journey kind of resembles um, the, the kind of anti-hero that, that Jesus is, uh, in, at least in human terms, in, in, the, in the gospel of this upcoming Sunday. Let me know if that's something that you'd be interested in, like a sh very short mini commentary on the readings of the upcoming Sunday, if that would help you in your own experience of Sunday, or maybe you tell me, well, eh, eh. We already have a homily to listen to, so don't bother. <laughs> Let me know. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? 
I read three more books this past week. The first one I already talked about in the television segment, uh, which is the book called Wool. This is the first book of the Silo Trilogy by Hugh Howie. Um, the difference with the television series is that the book spoils a lot. It tells you right from the get-go what's going on, whereas the television series kind of, like, teases you and only reveals at the very last moment of the very last episode of the first season the bigger scope of what's going on. And you're like, oh my goodness. In the book, they tell you, like, in the first few chapters what the situation is. And it's not to say that the book itself is bad, but I would not recommend, if you want, still want to see the first season of Silo, I would I would recommend you first watch the television series and then maybe even wait a little bit more before you read the book. Because the, the book, the story in the book, goes way beyond the events in season one. I think a lot of season two will probably be based on the second part of the of the first book. So... Do I regret reading it? Mm, a little bit, yes. Also, the television series is a, is a ton better than the book. Uh, Hugh Howe actually didn't really write the first book as a first part in a trilogy. Um, it's it's made out. It's made up from a number of short stories that all take place within a certain loose timeline or chronology but they were never conceived as one coherent story, and this is why the book is sometimes a little bit jumpy, like listening to the audiobook version, and, and all of a sudden in a new chapter, it's like, well, who is this person? Where does she come from? And we, why haven't we been introduced to her? It's just because every chapter, or every few chapters, the story is told from the perspective of one of the people in the silo. Um, and it's only afterwards that when he published them together as one book and it got very successful that the author was inspired to um, continue the story in book two and three, which then were conceived as as regular books. So there's probably going to be a little bit more coherence in the second and the third book. Um, I also read... Uh, a, um, uh, at least I, I th I, at first I thought I was going to read a self-help book. <laughs> and because it was called 10% Happier. And in the subtitle was something about, you know, how meditation can make you 10% happier. It's written by Dan Harris. And when I started listening to the audiobook, which is narrated by Dan Harris himself, um, it was totally different from what I expected. It's actually a memoir. Dan Harris um, uh, introduces himself as a host of the weekend version of uh, Good Morning America, He's also on a, is it NBC's Nightline? So he's probably, for American readers, a very familiar uh, television personality. And he talks about his career and the first years, how um, he was chasing after, you know, adrenaline boost after adrenaline boost. And, of course, having worked myself in the world of television, I can imagine some of that. It is very... Uh, it's a very thrilling type of work. It's 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 really cool to go from story to story, and 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 you hope to to really connect to an audience. And so, but there's also a lot of competition. So there's always tension. Well, what if they take me off the air? And and you know, who am I without my television job? And so he talks about all these anxieties and uh, that kind of work, and how it almost drove him into the wall or he drove himself into the wall because at one point he's starting to use drugs and, and cocaine to kind of 
push himself every time and, and, and create this buzz that, that he's invincible. And of course, it ends up in a disaster. He gets an anxiety attack on the air in front of millions of people that are watching this live. And that's when he realizes, I need to change my ways. And he had always been fascinated. He was um, asked to be the, what is it, the, the, the reporter for religious topics, which um, wasn't his own choice because he is a self-professed agnostic. So it's different from an atheist. An atheist says well, God does not exist, and an agnostic says, "Oh, I don't know if God exists or not, but it just doesn't hasn't have doesn't have any relevance to me." Um, and so he was indifferent towards these religious stories, but he still did it because you know <laughs> he needed to make a living. And so that's how he got into contact with a lot of gurus and religious people, and they, he saw also how many of them were actually just living a double life, and it was fake, and he talks about this this big evangelical pastor that then is revealed to be a crook and a sinner and whatnot. Um, so, and what I think is refreshing about that first part of the book is how skeptical he is himself. He's like, yeah, I don't know. And he he, start, he is interviewing, <clears throat> like, Eckhart Tolle, who is just one of these big names in the self-help uh, uh, world, um, as well as Deepak Chopra. Um, and and he, he narrates his experience during those interviews, and for... for both people is like, I don't know how these people are so famous because, yeah, they have some good ideas, but Eckhart Tolle is a bit strange and he's got, he can, he can say really, pun, uh, how you say that, uh, like relevant stuff and, and it makes you think. And then two seconds later, he's, he's like talking about these crazy theories and, and it's just like, this is guy really, <laughs> does he have his, um, how do you say that? Is he, is he sane, you know? <laughs> He's a bit loony. And then uh, Deepak Chopra um, kind of presents himself as this um, very calm guru, but at the same time, it's in his, in his presentation, it's all about making money and, and, uh, and, and he reveals himself to be not at, at all as serene as he presents himself on television. So anyway, there's a lot of... At first, he's like, "Yeah, I don't know about these gurus. I, don't, I just don't. I don't. I don't buy it." But he still keeps investigating because he feels like, "Well, maybe I should explore more. There, there have to be ways for me to to kind of quench my thirst for adrenaline and 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 find some rest and peace." And in in many ways, his story reminds me of the story of Saint Augustine before his conversion. You know, with his restless heart. He ends up going on a retreat, and then he is confined to basically the same space and the same people for 10 days. He cannot talk with them, and he he's doing these Buddhist type of meditations, and at first he hates it, and it's horrible, and then halfway through the um, retreat he gets um, an epiphany, and he's super enlightened, and then it ends in disaster, and it all comes crashing down. And Well, anyway, but it is transformative and at the same time it's very sobering that experience and he talks about that i think in a very funny way and 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 very relatable way and and the book does not explore at all uh the the christian uh meditation which really surprised me and maybe it's because 
the author is so American and he lives in, in, in a, maybe a part of the United States where they don't have that many monasteries. And his focus seems to be very much on the evangelical world, on the Protestant world. He completely glosses over the, 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 the centuries-old tradition of the Catholic Church and, and also the Orthodox Church when it comes to meditation. And I feel like, you know, that's the missing link. At one point he talks about meeting the Dalai Lama and, and it's all a bit, you know, it's, I like that he's, He's he's not falling for the kind of the, the the guru status of these people, but at the same time he still misses the mark as to you know well but he's afraid that if he meditates too much he's going to lose his edge and then he basically gets the advice that well you know what you can still be alert you can still react without getting angry and and so you can stay sharp and and meditate as well and 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 then at one point he's talking about well shouldn't meditation go beyond just my own self-interest. And then he uh, is talking about how meditation is supposed to make you a little little bit more altruistic and kinder, uh, which he says, you know, that's actually what's happening. But then he immediately translates it to, and that's good for me because it uh, gives me more business contacts and people like me more, so I'll be more successful. And I'm like, no, dude, that's not the point. (laughs) You're supposed to lose your ego and to really, truly be there for someone else, even if it's not to your advantage. And and that's where I miss the Christian um, perspective on this, where meditation is never a goal in itself. Meditation... And prayer is for you to lose yourself so that you can be there for God and for your neighbor. If there's not this altruistic outcome, then the whole process becomes about you. And you're still, even though you say that it's not about losing your ego, you still do it for yourself. And what does the rest of the world uh, have to do with that? How is that going to benefit anyone else? And so there's this little bit of a kind of self-centeredness in, in this story that I felt was was linked to this, this, this I don't know, kind of more Buddhist, New Agey approach that he takes towards meditation. Um, anyway, <laughs> maybe if I meet this guy one of these days, I'll, I'll talk about him, about that. And, and, and he really should go to a monastery and do a, uh, a Catholic retreat just to see just to talk about the differences. I don't want him to, you know, I, I would say I, I, I found it refreshing to, to have someone who is not, uh, you know, bowing down for all these gurus and he stays, you know, full of humor and a, a, a healthy dose of skepticism. Uh, but I feel like there is a dimension of this whole meditation, uh, a business that he leaves unexplored because of his own probably myopic view of uh, of society i don't know anyway come to europe go to a monastery the last book that i read uh, i finished reading it uh, yesterday late at night is the house in the cerulean sea by tj clune was recommended to me by my friend john domick who read the book because it was recommended to him by his daughter and um uh, John and I have often have the same taste when it comes to these stories, and and so I read it. It's a bit of a it's a long book. It tells a, a bit of a fairy tale like story about uh, an inspector who, on behalf of the government, has to uh, inspect the various orphanages in the country, 
um, to make sure that the children are taken care of, etc., etc., etc. Then he is sent to this strange orphanage, um, this house in the Cerulean Sea, where there are only a few children, but all of them are magical children. One of them actually is even called Lucy, but it's a boy, and it it ends it it is revealed to be the son of Lucifer of the devil and the only thing that this kid can talk about is how he's going to end the world and he's going to end the lives of the people around him and so at first uh, the inspector is very alarmed by this and there is in his opinion a a sure threat uh, that if if these kids are not well uh, accompanied and taken care of they may may actually be a real danger to society um, and then there, there is another there is another guy, an adult, who is taking care of these kids, and he's the like the headmaster of the of the orphanage. Um, and um, I won't spoil exactly what happens, but the inspector basically spends a number of weeks with these kids and and discovers that actually they're just kids and they have a lot of potential, and because they're different, um, society has a lot of um, of of. Uh, uh, negative judgment, preconceived ideas about these kids, and so has the government. And the book is very much on the nose with its, its allegorical messaging that this, of course, is bad, and it's this is what's happening in our world with the LGBTQ people that are, you know, not accepted for who they are. And so there's very, very clear agenda and the author actually tj clune um, doesn't hide that in all interviews he says you know in in my books i want to represent uh gay people lgbtq people because i feel that in a lot of especially in fiction um uh lgbtq people are often misrepresented and or they are presented in a very cliche way and i want to do justice to these people because they're just like anyone else and they have relationships and there is depth and, you know, we need to go beyond these predefined ideas of, of who these people are. So he deliberately chooses gay uh, main characters in every book. The thing, the, my problem with the book is not that because I think that that's, that's, uh, that's important that in stories um, we, we do represent uh, also marginalized uh, people um, this, this is the, we, we cannot just uh, pretend that everybody is the same. No, one one of the values that I hold dear as a as a Catholic is that we are all children of God, no matter um, who we are and what identity, how we define ourselves. We're all loved, and we all are brothers and sisters. So we we owe each other respect, and um, and we need to protect also the the unicity of, of people and and uh, uh, make sure that they feel fully accepted in our society and also in 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 our churches. Um, so I don't really have a problem with that aspect of this book. Um, but what I do have issues with is that it is so on the nose. And the story itself is a little bit on the long side, a little bit. I was towards the end, I was like, come on, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Let's get this over with, you know, wrap up the story. There's there's not much happening in the book. And it's 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 a it's defined as a very cozy book. And in that respect it reminded me a lot of of Legends and Lattes, which is 
also kind of the same genre, uh, including the representation of LGBTQ characters, LGBTQ plus characters. Sorry about the. I'm always bad with uh, all those acronyms, um, but but again, with that book too, I didn't mind that aspect of the book, but I did find it so on the nose and and and, and a bit preachy. Um, whereas the rest of the story was kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's not bad. It's not that I dislike the story. It's it's entertaining, but I felt like every chapter there, there's this preaching going on of respect, and, and and maybe that's necessary. Again, I don't want to reject it altogether, but I, if I step back, I'm thinking, is was this a story that I, that was just like the perfect read and I, I couldn't wait to see how it would end or evolve. What about the characters? Is there true character development? They're a little bit, but it's all, it's all a bit, I don't know. It, it just didn't, didn't, didn't really, um, uh, how do I say this? I, when I read books, I really want this story to, keep me going and 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 this is true also for for movies every once in a while i'll, I'll watch a movie in theaters and i will fall asleep because it's just I, you know it's entertaining sure it's a popcorn movie but it doesn't really grab me it doesn't i don't need to know how it ends and so if this book would have had a sequel i probably wouldn't read it because yeah the first story was yeah it was okay but <laughs> if if it would have been half the length i would have been happy as well so anyway, your mileage may vary. Uh, I know that for John, uh, he wrote that in his Goodreads um, review. Uh, this book really struck a chord because he's a teacher. So he works with children and he's very much as a teacher uh, concerned with the full potential of kids, no matter what, what, what their background is. Um, he, he wants the best for these kids. And that is a very, you know, strong message of this book. Um, but yeah, I... I I have a slightly different background maybe while reading this book and so it was just a bit too long and a bit too much on the nose. Anyway. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well... All your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Let's wrap things up with a quick look at the world of technology and video games. I've been uh, really enjoying my uh, my Xbox uh, Series 1. Series... Xbox Series one, Series X? Or <laughs> Xbox One? I don't know what it's called. Anyway, the, the newest Xbox. Um, and uh, I often play kind of low low attention video games and listen to audiobooks at the same time. Uh, so I, I really like the kind of the grindy games where you don't have to make all sorts of decisions and be fully concentrated on what's happening. Like I, I played a session of um, uh, Gears of War. And the reason is I've discovered that Microsoft actually has a, a point system, a reward system, where you can save up rewards by using Bing in your browser, which, by the way, actually really blew me away. The, the Bing now has artificial intelligence, so kind of chat GTP-like functionality. 
And uh, and of course, Microsoft wants you to use that that um, search engine over Google. And you know, I don't have any preferences. I know that that Google also you know benefits and makes money with my search uh, quiet, uh, my inquiries using their search engine. So if Microsoft gives me some extra points, which you then can trade for like a gift card or something like that, I'll 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 try it out. So uh, you also get points for playing certain games on the Xbox. So that's how I saw that I could, you know, make like get 100 points for, for playing Gears of War, which is a game that I played maybe 10 years ago. And it's just not for me. It's like this big covert shooting game with big monsters and very gory. And but anyway, I was like, hey, if I can make, if I can win 100 points by just playing one multiplayer game, I'll do it. And actually... I quite liked it. It was really, you know, we won. Our team won, which, like, man, this is, I've never played games like this, and we get a win, and actually managed to contribute to the win, because I was always a bit, felt, I would feel guilty if I would only die and and um, tri- contribute to the loss of our team. But we won the game, so I felt good about that. Um, but those games are way too intense, so I tend to play like easier games uh, I've, I've started to play uh, the Xenoblade Chronicles the first game which is a remake of uh, the original which was available on the Wii and also I think on the, the 3DS and I I had the, the game on the 3DS maybe also on the Wii because the Wii actually you could play those games on, on a television screen and the world of, of Xenoblade is very big it, it's uh, reminiscent of uh, the type of worlds that you see in, in Breath of the Wild it's got these big landscapes. It's a very beautiful game, even though it's um, it's kind of low res. Um, and so when I when I saw that these games were available on the Switch, um, I I got the Xenoblade One, the remake, and then recently I bought Xenoblade Three, uh, both of which I can play on on my TV here. Um, and what I like actually about the game is what many reviewers have have seen as the flaw of the game it's it can be very grindy where you just have to gather points by slaying the same type of enemies over and over again and i'm thinking oh that sounds like the perfect game for me because i can play that without really thinking and at the same time i can work my way through all these audiobooks that i'm consuming so i'm looking forward to uh, to playing that game a little bit more um, so that's xenoblade chronicles another game that i'm looking forward to is persona 3 which is a um, uh, uh, a, a game that has been around for whew, more than 10 years, I think. It's a very famous uh, JRPG, so a Japanese RPG game, uh, where you fight monsters at night, and and during the day you're just, you know, in school. <laughs> and so it's got a little bit of that, like, relationship sim, plus monster fights, uh, very much RPG-type fights, and um, the persona is basically the, there is a, like a, kind of ghost-like warrior inside of you that you can conjure up and that can help you win the fights against these infernal monsters. Um, The original game featured a lot of um, cool anime sequences, which then subsequently were left out of the the next few adaptations. Um, It also had like 3D, a bit of like isometric 3D... um, scenes especially the, the scenes during the day where you basically get to know your fellow players etc um and and then they made a version for the playstation portable which of course was very like in terms of hardware very modest machine uh, and they took out all the anime they took out the 3d and 
I just never, I tried it out and I never liked it. It's like, nah, this is, this is actually a, much worse than the original. And then they did a remake for the Xbox, which I can play via Game Pass. And it's still like the, the, the PlayStation Portable version. And the only thing that it adds is a female character that you can play, which for a lot of the fans of of, of um, Persona 3 was like, oh, wow, that's a new story. And, and then they announced that they were going to do a remake. And this time it would be based on the original version. And... Uh, and then they took out a lot of the innovations uh, and, and the female character that, were, you know, were, were part of the subsequent, you know, the previous remakes. And so uh, it's a, it's, it seems to me that the, the ideal version of this game does not exist. Um, let me just play a little bit of the sound of the of the Persona 3 portable trailer. There is also a trailer for the, for the remake, which really looks good, but it has this horrible music playing in the background and there's no story content. Which you That's do have the here. dark hour, a time period hidden between one day and the next. Welcome. I've been waiting a long time. Voiceovers are always a little bit over the top. When you use your persona ability, you must channel your inner strength. I always prefer the original Japanese voices. So anyway, that's just a very little sound bite of the PlayStation Portable game. So the, I will probably, I hope that I can play the, the the remade version because they redid everything and the graphics look fantastic. And since I haven't played all these different types of versions, I don't miss really what they left out. But I can see that the, the hardcore fans are a bit upset. It's like, why can't we just have like put all the good stuff together and turn that into a game? Why do we have to always have like these these truncated versions of the of the game that we love so much? Speaking of truncated aspects, uh, let's talk very briefly about the further demise, you could say, of both Reddit and Twitter, these huge platforms that were the golden standard for social communications for many, many years. And both of them seem to go the same way, the same, down the same road. And I don't know how this is going to end. But as Han Solo would say, I got a bad feeling about this. Um, just this past week, you have undoubtedly heard this on the news or maybe experienced it, it's, it yourself. Twitter has continued to degrade uh, its user experience by capping the amount of tweets that you are able to see. And if you are not a paying member of the Twitter platform, um, you're now reduced to seeing only, what is it, 600 tweets. Which is, like, for me, that's five minutes of browsing. They also completely uh, broke the tweet deck that for me was the only reason that I still use the platform because in TweetDeck I had columns of all the various areas of interest that and and I it would keep me up to date because a lot of the big players in the media and journalism were still on Twitter and weren't moving to Mastodon where I actually that's where I interact with people and Mastodon for me now is almost on par with Twitter the only differences a lot of the people that i followed on twitter are not on mastodon but that may be about to change <laughs> because the old version of tweet deck is now completely broken doesn't load anymore and 
people are forced to sign in to the new version of TweetDeck, which uses the API in a different way. It's probably also one of the reasons that um, the old version of TweetDeck doesn't work anymore. But Elon Musk has now announced that that new version of TweetDeck will be only for paying members of the Twitter platform, which I am not going to do. It's such a bad deal, like eight bucks, come on. Uh, no, and uh, I, I really abhor everything that Elon Musk stands for, the way he interacts, the things that he says, the, 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 his views, the way he treats people. Uh, there is, I'm, there's not a single fiber in my being that wants to support someone uh, who has that type of worldview and displays this kind of behavior. Not to mention, you know, the, the degrading safety on uh, and reliability of the information that you find on Twitter. So I'm just hoping that now that the cat is out of the bag and there is no way without paying that you're going to have the, you know, the experience that we used to have on Twitter, I hope that's going to be the last straw for a lot of people. Like, for instance, if you cannot even see any tweets anymore unless you have an account with Twitter, which... Uh, <laughs> I kind of breaks the function of Twitter as a public uh, town square because a lot of official institutions, also the Vatican, is using Twitter, and that's where they they post their press releases. But if you can only see that if if you if if the only way you can see that is by becoming a member of the Twitter community and they're capping even your ability to see tweets, then I think it's a closed system and it's um, a, a lot of these. Public-facing um, companies should choose other means to get their information out. I would still say Mastodon is the way to go. Uh, Blue Sky for me, which is um, uh, kind of also privately owned, um, is, is still the same problem. Over time, you know, that company needs to make money as well. So there are going to be ads, there are going to be all algorithms. None of that is currently uh, the case and won't be the case with the Fediverse. So... Um, but, of course, they're several years behind when it comes to development of, of the platform. But I think over time, I, I, have, I already enjoy Mastodon as it is, and it can only get better. The same is true for Reddit. Of course, you big, big controversy where Reddit wants to make money, and then, you know, uh, they, they, they were... They, 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 now all the third-party apps are broken... There's been this big revolution among the moderators. And what you see is that now the 1st of July, the, the API has changed. So none of the third-party apps work. And a lot of people are leaving Reddit and are moving to the Fediverse. And I have done that as well. I wasn't a big Reddit user. But if you ask any question in the search engines, um, <laughs> nine times out of ten, it will redirect you to, to Reddit. Um, but... Instead, I'm now using Lemmy, L-E-M-M-Y, and I'm on a very big server, Lemmy.world. If you type that in, Lemmy.world, you can sign up for an account. It's not the same um, account as you would have for, uh, for Mastodon, because even though it's part of the Fediverse, it's a very different service. Um, and, and, and the experience is actually very much the same as on Reddit. In fact, I actually really like the the vibe because it feels like the early years of reddit people are excited they want to make this happen and, and and so a lot of people have come over and are posting very entertaining content including the memes and there's a really nice 
like community feeling uh, around Lemmy. And I think that has always been the strength of Reddit. But the CEO, the current CEO, has completely destroyed that 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 um, goodwill among his users and moderators. But you find that on Lemmy. So, and a lot of third-party uh, developers are now building very quickly new third-party apps for Lemmy. Um, and I think that's going to be the key to the success of this um, particular part of the Lemmy-verse. Fediverse, I should say. Lemmy. <laughs> Fediverse. Mastodon. All new names. I, I think it's like the first time we heard Twitter. It's like, what kind of name is that? Twitter? I'm going to tweet? No, seriously. That's... That's not. Those are not words that we're going to use. And and here we are. <laughs> it's already old hat. It's an interesting world to live in. Hey, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. I hope you enjoyed this show. There's more to come. Um, and for those of you that are supporting me on Patreon, thank you so much. I, I I rely on your support. We're not there yet. I can't pay all the bills, so we we need to grow the amount of patrons. So if you are able to contribute then I hope you will do so. Even small amounts, you know, you may think, yeah, it's just $2.50 a month. That's like a drop of water in the ocean. But you know what? The ocean consists of drops of water. (laughs) So it's the volume. Uh, Like less than a few percent of the listeners to this particular episode is actually part of my Patreon community. So don't think it, it, it doesn't matter. No, every little bit helps. So I hope you will join my patrons so I can continue to do this work see you next time have a great rest of your week we'll talk soon God bless <laughs>